Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens, giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And all you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Yeah, it's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We do, in fact, take on the rumor and innuendo surrounding your favorite bands and favorite songs. We try to make some sense of it. My name is Brian. I'm Murdoch. I'm super stoked. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Make sure if you have any ideas for the show, make sure and email us. Oh. We are the story guys at gmail.com. I- I'm telling you, get great ideas. The inbox has been out of control lately. Uh, we, I, I read some of them on uh, on a bonus episode on Friday with our bonus content talking about Van Halen. And then uh, we pro- we'll probably have to do more later this week. The mailbag um, has, has been full, uh, including a note from Eric. Eric writes the show. He says, love your podcast. My favorite band is Black Sabbath. I heard this rumor about a groupie overdosing and dying in Tony Iommi's hotel room. Can you clear this up? Thanks. Wow. Fun. Don't know. I mean, not for the groupie. Excited. Well, no. But I'm excited <laughs> about I'm excited to talk about drugs and Black Sabbath. Well, okay. So Eric, by writing this, is bringing attention to something. We've done a lot on Ozzy. Uh, we've done an episode about Geezer. Uh, we even we did an episode about Randy. Uh, but Bill and Tony have not gotten a ton of moments in the sun on this show, so I think it's time for a Tony episode. Let's actually start with the question. Did a groupie die in Tony Iommi's hotel room? I will say I cannot find hard facts on this, so let me break this down into baby questions, okay? Did Black okay. Sabbath do a lot of drugs? Have you seen uh, <laughs> Have you seen videos on YouTube <laughs> in the 70s? Okay, so yes. are we saying this is a hard yes? Okay. Did Black Sabbath do a lot of drugs and other things with a lot of women. Yeah. yeah I'm going to say yes. That's a very hard yes, all puns intended. Uh, did a lot of both of these things probably happen in hotel rooms? Of course. Okay. Right. So all the components are there. I've not yeah. found concrete evidence that someone died in Tony's hotel room. I can't even really find a direct link to that rumor, but man, that's about the only rumor that doesn't seem readily available on the internet when it comes to Iomi and Black Sabbath. I will say that Black Sabbath and rumors of depravity and decadence throw the curve, and honestly, they kind of jump the shark. Like, it, it gets to a point where it's almost not fun talking about Black Sabbath and crazy stuff they might have done or say they did, because it gets so ridiculous that there's no way to like keep up with it. I found this compilation of sorts on Ranker listing the craziest Black Sabbath stories. Of course, you can enjoy this via the show notes. It is titled, Drug-Fueled Sorted Tales from Black Sabbath's Heyday that prove just how unhinged they really were. <laughs> Thank yeah. God for which listicles is, on the internet. Which is a drag because if you look at the, at the, just the scope of work, specifically like the first four albums or so, let me give you a smattering of these rock and roll rumors that exist on the internet and, and and exist in this list. And they don't even just exist in this list. And they don't even really exist as rumors because we would define a rumor by like it not being substantiated by someone. And almost all of these come from different band biographies and autobiographies. So they're coming from the band. 
Now, that could be, I mean, we know this band has done a lot of drugs, so I don't know how reliable a source they really are, but these aren't like things that like other people say about the band. These are things the band has said about themselves. So here's a few. They spent more money on Coke while recording Volume 4 than they did making the album. Yeah. Like the Blues Brothers movie. That's what Black Sabbath is like. When I think of Black Sabbath, that's what I think about. Tony Iobi set Bill Ward on fire for fun while recording Heaven and Hell. That's awesome. Ozzy accidentally poisoned Bill Ward by spraying a toxic aerosol substance on his dick. He poisoned him by spraying it on his dick. Okay. That is substantiated by the band. During the band's heyday, Ozzy took a dump in an upscale hotel elevator in full view of the lobby. (laughs) It, in 1972, Ozzy accidentally called the cops while high and locked himself in a bathroom to do all the drugs before they got there to take them. Yes. You've heard that one? I've heard a, I've heard a story about they were doing a lot of drugs in the studio mm-hmm. and got really paranoid and flushed an enormous amount of drugs, and there were no cops. It was like one of those paranoid-fueled drug freak shows where they're like the cops are coming yeah and they just had like tons and tons of thousands of dollars of cocaine and pot right and And there wasn't there wasn't like one instance of them having a ton of drugs and being in a studio or having a bunch of drugs and being in a hotel room it was like every instance of them being in those places there were a ton of drugs right so all these stories run together here's another one geezer tried to kill himself while on a bad acid trip yeah okay that i just what i just gave you was about half the stories in the piece that you can read in the show notes all right. And these are all out of the band biographies and autobiographies. Now, we could get really distracted by any of those. So I want to do something non traditional for this show. Instead of okay. delving into that, I want to agree to set aside this rumor. Eric, if it's okay with you, I want to set aside that rumor and I just want to talk about the guitar player from your favorite band. And I want to talk, I want to, instead of those unbelievable tales of decadence and those pornographic tall tales <laughs> I mean if it did happen if a groupie died in Tony Tony Iommi's hotel room even if that groupie was a unicorn mermaid with the face of a young Liz Taylor the sensational unbelievableness of that would still pale in comparison to a story about Tony Iommi that is not only 100% true and verified but also one of the coolest underdog stories that I have ever heard I want to talk. I can't believe you went unicorn, young-looking Liz Taylor's <laughs> face. Like, I'm stuck. I don't know what the hell you're even talking about now. Okay, let me All go. I'm thinking about is the guys from Black Sabbath all trying to angle on <laughs> young Liz Taylor, who's, like, splashed. Like Daryl Hannah from Splash. Like, she's kind of a mermaid, but she's also, like... All right, all right. This is what... Liz? Okay. Okay, no. focus. I want to talk about Tony's fingers. Okay, let's start here. We talked a lot about Eddie Van Halen recently. Did you know that Tony and Eddie became good buddies? No, I, I, I didn't know that. Um, I've read something where recently where someone really odd uh, became friends with Eddie. Um, he, he did this at the end. I mean, you know, later in his career, he made friends with a lot of people, uh, but he was selective. And Eddie has been candid that part of why he was into this friendship was it was rooted in a combination of respect and admiration because Van Halen loved Black Sabbath. And if you know after, yeah, 
If you know anything about the Never Say Die Tour, and we talked about this a lot on the Ozzy versus the Hyatt episode, Van Halen was the opener on that tour. And do you know the backstory on why they got chosen as the opener for that tour? Is it Dave and girls or what? No. So Ozzy knew that they were on too many drugs. They all knew this. And so they went to their people and they said, listen, just get us a bar band from L.A. (laughs) (laughs) That's a true story. And it's it's one of my all-time favorite things because, man, those agents accidentally got the best bar band to ever come out of L.A. <laughs> like, just, yeah. I mean, they filled the order. They went to L.A. and got a band that was hadn't really made it yet and was playing a sh- crappy bar, as we talked about, spent most of a, the 70s playing Gazaris. Like, it, you know, they they followed... The request, and these guys show up for the Never Say Die tour, <laughs> and man, they get a rude awakening. Van Halen had this problem. You've talked about this on the show before. Van Halen had this problem at this time. They were blowing veteran bands off the stage, and veteran bands didn't want to play with them. There are yeah. stories of Mick Jagger and Joe Perry both throwing cold shoulders at that this virtually unknown act because Eddie would get up there and be so badass, and they were afraid of getting Eddie. overshadowed. But eventually during this period, Tony and Eddie not only learn to tolerate each other, they become pals, and they stay in touch on and off for the rest of their lives. Side note, any idea on Rolling Stone's top 100 guitarist list from like a decade ago, do you know where Eddie is and where Tony is? I'm going to just guess Go for that it. they didn't screw this up. Eddie's in the top five? He's actually not. He's in top 10. Oh. He's in top 10. All right. And then Tony is not no. in the top 10. No. So. Tony's 25, Eddie is 8. 8, okay. If we want to get distracted, I'll run down the top 10. 10 is Townsend, Allman, Van Halen, yeah, Chuck Berry, which yeah. for influence, but like not necessarily for yeah. playing, right? Influence, for sure. B.B. King, Jeff yeah. Beck, Keith, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix. Eric Clapton, over... Rated. I mean, number there two is substantial. That that yeah, is substantial. Num- number eighty-two is more appropriate. I get it from the infl- influence. Like people loved Clapton, but I think now, like we can kind of look back and be like, eh. yeah, like the like Dwayne Allman, Greg Allman, better guitar players. Well, yeah, anyway. but the again, you're right about the influence because all these other guitar players on this list, like at some point, were like, man, I was really into Clapton. I mean, even Eddie was really into Clapton. Sure, yeah. I was going to say, some people would argue that John Mayer is a better guitar player than Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton might argue that. I mean, he lets him come to Crossroads. (laughs) So, describe Tony stylistically, if you can. (laughs) Do do you have a way to describe Tony's style of playing guitar? I think it's just brooding and um, slow... And when it's fast, it's it's dramatic. So when they switch from slow to fast, it's dramatic. But it's it's meant to be sort of like methodical and, and scary. You know what Eddie called him? What? The master of riffs. Guitar player stated it like this. The Guitar Player Magazine. Saying Tony, quote, recontextualized the same blues-based licks and riffs that everyone else was playing at the time into a much darker and heavier sound that soon became Sabbath's calling card. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's um, now, there were specific things that he did. Uh, one of them was tuning. 
And the other, he he created these thimbles for his fingers. Yeah, but those he th- did those thimbles weren't idealistic at first. They were practical. He had to have them, and that's where this all gets really really interesting. But don't spoil the story because I know you want to. <laughs> to get to where we need to go, we got to dial things way back to Birmingham, England, nineteen forty eight. You ready to go with me? Yeah. All right. Going to tell all right. Tony's- all right. Little Anthony Frank Iommi is born into the world. Frank. How, how to describe this kid? I know it is weird when Frank is a middle name. It's not Francis. It's just Frank. Uh, yeah. Okay. Describing Anthony Frank. I think we have to use the term accident prone. First example of this that has been committed to his personal history. Birchfield Road School. He's like eight or nine. You know who he goes to school with, by the way? Someone famous, right? Uh, Ozzy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Is it just him? Is it just Ozzy? Yeah, yeah. Ozzy's a year okay. behind him. But o- okay, Ozzy's not part weird. of this story. The story involves some nameless school chump who got to chasing Tony at recess. And in the flurry of activity, Tony loses his footing, falls on his face, and gets this massive cut on his lip. And this immediately marks him as an object of ridicule at Birchfield. He becomes known, I'm not kidding, as Scarface. Yeah. <laughs> Kids are so he original. Gets- what should we call that's the kid I, with a scar on his face? <laughs> that's why he had the creepy mustache. Always. That's why he has the creepy mustache. He's it, it, it's because it's the same reason that Paul Stanley had the big crazy fro of hair is because he had a disfigured ear. Really? They got yeah. They were made. They were bullied because they they had dis they had disfiguring things like. Uh, Paul was born with a, a, a messed up ear that actually had he like his hearing was kind of like messed up in that ear that ear as well, um, but yeah. So yeah, that's Tony Tony and the uh, the mustache. No, th- this this story about Tony actually gives him something in common with the most recent film adapted version of Agatha Christie's hero Hercules Poirot. Uh, ha- have you seen the new version of Death on the Nile? I'm going to say no, Brian. I have not. The first 10 minutes of that movie is like a mini film with the backstory of his massive mustache. No. And it's very similar to Tony's. It's very similar to Tony's backstory. I'm not going to spoil it any further than that, but I'm just going to say when you sit down to watch Death on the Nile and you're confused as to what you're watching for the first 10 minutes, just know the punchline is that this is why Poirot has a mustache. That's what you're about to find out. All right. Okay. So anyway, uh, now, I do think this scar makes Tony feel the need to be good at other things. Like, he knows there's this active challenge to his handsomeness embedded in his face now, so he's looking for other ways to be competent. And it gets him into martial arts. And then, it eventually leads him wow. to music. Now, like all guys in this situation, what's he try first? He tries singing? No, he tries the drums. Why do guys try drums first? It seems like so much work. It's a lot of work, but drums are cool, man. And then he lands on guitar. Now, influences of the musical kind are a key part of the Iomi story. So it is worth mentioning the guy that makes him want to learn guitar. And that's this guy, Hank Marvin, who was in this band called The Shadows. So Tony's, so weird. yeah, I mean, it's funny to me that this is like, Tony Iommi's like, I got to learn to play guitar because of that guy. But I can see how, you know, it 
it's the 60s, and this is sort of cool. General's got it in the massage. Like, there's a leap you got to make to go from that. I think there's a mashup we have to make. Uh, so I, I, I bring this up because influences, inspirations are important, and we're going to talk more about that coming up. But with that inspiration, Tony gets some basic chops, and he starts fooling around in bands. Typical high school turnover. But he's ending up with musicians who are good enough to be getting pub gigs, and he's 17. And he eventually gets in this group called the Birds and the Bees. And they're looking to be legit. They're starting to get some tour dates. Tony's all in. Now, he's been working as a welder in this sheet metal factory, playing with his band when he could. So this is going to be his ticket out. He is going to actually get to go on tour with this band and quit his job at the factory. So he goes and tells his boss. He picks a last day. He shows up for work, and he does the morning shift, and he goes home for lunch. Now, I don't know what your work ethic was like as a 17-year-old, but Tony tries something that I, it seems relatable to me. He goes home for lunch. He knows he's got a few hours left back at the factory. Mom's making him lunch, and he tells his mom, I don't think I'm going to go back. I'm, you know, like, what are they going to do, fire me? And his mom, his mom says he has to go back. Finish what you start. Be dependable, something like that. Forces the 17-year-old son to go back to work and finish the shift. And as Tony puts it in his autobiography, entitled Iron Man, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell. Yes. What a great name. I mean, it it is unbelievably awesome as a name for a book. Quote, so I did. I went back to work, and then my whole world fell apart. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that my immune system needs to be in tip-top shape, and AG1 helps me get there. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, they're all there, and bonus, it does not taste bad, which is really good. Uh, It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, any of that stuff, contains less than one gram of sugar and helps better sleep quality and mental clarity and alertness. Really good when you're doing a lot of rock and roll research. It's important to me, right? Uh, So listen, it's time for you to reclaim your health. Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, cup of water every day. That's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Go check it out and just make sure you put athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Oh, my gosh. Crazy is this story. Let, let, Let me read this next part from his book in his own words. This is the beginning of chapter six. So as I said, it was my last day at work. I also love the way this book is written because it's real conversational. Uh, There was this lady who bent pieces of metal on a machine, and then I melted them together because she didn't come in that day. They put me on her machine. Otherwise, I'd have been standing around doing nothing. I had never worked this machine. I didn't know how to go about it. It was a big guillotine press with a foot pedal. You pulled this sheet in, and you put your foot down on the pedal, and then this thing came down with a bang and bent the metal. Things went all right in the morning. After I came back from my lunch break, I pushed the pedal and the press came straight down to my right hand. And as I pulled my hand back as a reflex, I pulled the end of my fingers off. Now, 
You want to do this? He, he actually walks you through understanding what happened to him in this book. This book is great, by the way. BT Dubs. You check it out. He says, stretch your hand out. You want to do this? If you're at home and you're not driving or something, you can do this with us. Stretch your hand out. And then line up your index finger and your little finger. And draw a line between the tips, across the tips. It's the bits sticking out from the two fingers in the middle that got chopped off. Ah. The bones were sticking out of them. I just couldn't believe it. There was blood everywhere, and I was in so much shock, it didn't even hurt at first. At first. Soak this in for a moment. Holy cow. It should be made clear here. Right hand on a left-handed guitarist, which means while on most guitars this would suck, it wouldn't be quite as devastating because the right hand would be strumming. But on Tony, his right hand is what guitarists call the fretting hand. Holds the strings down, so you need your fingertips. Which have been cut off. Oh, my God. So he goes on in the book to describe the hospital visit. He says their immediate response to contain the mess, this is wacky, is to put his hand in a bag, and the thing just starts filling up with blood. Wow. <laughs> I mean, think wow. about that. It feel, feels like home. <laughs> I know. It's like when you <laughs> your kid comes over, so you're like, here, just put this towel on it. Stick your head in a bag. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, someone, this is a detail he, he had. Someone from the factory gathers up the bits of his fingers and brings them to the hospital. <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a class act. That's a real guy. That's a real friend. Uh, they can't reattach anything, so they graft skin from his arm and just cover up the ends of his fingers because it's just bone. It's just bone. So he gets, he gets his own skin, covers up where his, his skin was ripped off. I'm holding my face right now, just listening to you repeat that back to me. It's just, yeah, oh, it's so painful. Yeah, and now we get the picture. And just like that, Tony's future like that. is demolished. He was about to tour with a rock band, and now his fretting oh. hand is thrashed. And so, what's he, he going to do he, with he, this? He takes hand. to sitting at home and being pretty pissed off. And. People come to visit him. One of the people that comes to visit him, this guy has some big cojones. It's his old boss. It's this old bald guy named Brian. And I think it's fitting that this guy's name is Brian because he, like me, knew a thing or two about music history. And one day he decides to essentially go over to Tony's house and conduct his own rudimentary early version of rock and roll bedtime stories. Brian is playing the role of me, Brian. And Tony Iommi is fulfilling the role currently handled by you. Okay. And the crazy thing that Brian reveals to Tony, he says, Tony, not all hope is lost because you aren't the first guitarist to almost lose your ability to play because of an accident. And there is a precedent for how to move on and be successful after this. Hmm. Yeah. And so he, old boss. he reaches over to Tony's turntable, which has been neglected since the accident because Tony doesn't want to talk about music, let alone listen to it. And he slides a vinyl onto the turntable and he lowers the needle and he lets this music fill the room.
That's the sweet sounds of Django Reinhardt. What happened to Django's fingers, Brian? So, wait, what do you know about Django Reinhardt? He was a gambler, smoker, <laughs> womanizer. <laughs> he was wild. He was a rowdy, he was a rowdy, was rowdy guy. wild. Uh, Django is great. Now, let me tell you how I learned, stepping out from this rock and roll bedtime story happening in Tony Omi's bedroom as a teenager, uh, me and you, real talk, let me tell you how I learned about Django Reinhardt. I worked with this guy in a in a warehouse throwing boxes when I was in college. He was an older guy, and he knew that I was into music, and so he would talk to me about music, and he mostly just wanted to talk about Willie Nelson. But one time, he came in, and he was like, we were talking about guitar, and he, he played guitar. He brought me demos, which I still have, which I'll play for you sometime, because they're actually really good. They just sound like Willie Nelson. And, uh, and he was like, have you ever heard Django Reinhardt? And I was like, that's an awesome name, but I don't know who you're talking about. And so he told me about Django Reinhardt, just like Brian told Tony about Django Reinhardt all those years uh, ago in teenage Tony's uh. bedroom. Now, Django was born in Belgium in 1910 into a family of Romani descent. Now, we don't have time for the history lesson that really warrants, but to create a crude context that will at least give an accurate picture of what it was like to be Django, Romani. This is an ethnic group from northern India that ends up in France and gets equivocated to like gypsies. So if you see like yeah. a very unofficial version of this story, they'll basically say that Django Reinhardt was a gypsy, but he was not. They're an ethnic group with a real home. But this means that Django is growing up like in encampments, like a gypsy, like not stable. Right. But he's this classic case of growing up around music and taking up the violin at an early age. And then at age 12, someone gives him a banjo guitar and he watches other musicians to learn how to move his fingers. And by the time he's 15, he's busking. Now, at 17, he gets to actually record music. This is 1928. And so that's special. Not everybody's just going to their, you know, going to the neighborhood and getting yeah. to record music, right? Um, and so he gets to record music and he's drawing attention to himself and from people who matter. In fact, British band leader Jack Hilton goes to France to hear him play and offers him a job on the spot. Does this sound familiar? A 17-year-old kid without a lot of prospects honing his craft gets an offer to go on tour away from a dead-end situation. And what happens to Django? And then, before the tour can start, Django Reinhardt is going to bed in a damn wagon because he lives in this encampment. He and his wife share this wagon. He got married young. And he knocks over a candle by accident. Now, detail about his wife. His wife helped make ends meet in her own way. She made artificial flowers. And to make these artificial flowers, she used celluloid. Are you a celluloid expert? No. I I am not, but something you should know about it. Extremely flammable. Oh, the whole wagon goes up in flames. Oh, because of the artificial flowers. They get out alive. But it's brutal. Extensive burns over half of Django's body. He's hospitalized for 18 months. They tell him at one point he's going to lose a... 18 months? A year and a half? A year and a half. They think he's going to lose a leg. It's going to be a disaster. But he powers through. But what he loses completely is the use of two fingers on his fretting hand. Oh, get the 
fuck yeah. Isn't this the craziest thing you've ever heard, dude? How Django has couldn't use two of his fingers? Django played with two freaking fingers. He never regains the use of those two fingers, but it doesn't matter. Reinhardt focuses on the remaining fingers, and he comes to be known for this style of playing focused almost exclusively on using just two fingers. Wow. And oh, just far out. Dude. So if you don't know who Django Reinhardt is, most people have probably heard this name if you're a music head, but he basically pioneers the use of guitar inside the jazz world. He's this mm-hmm. has this crazy insane life and he changes the world of guitar forever. Yeah. And if you just need cliff notes, there's a bio movie that Sean Penn plays in called Sweet and Lowdown and it's freaking awesome. Like let me just tell you my favorite Django story. Just one. So he's in, it becomes very important to his life story that he's of Romani descent because of the time period. The Romanis, basically, okay, shorthand, we're calling them gypsies, right? Remember, Hitler does not like Jews and he does not like gypsies. He does not like populations that are encamping all over the place and are like removed from their home, right? He wants everything to be one look. So... They're getting they're getting put into concentration camps. They're like terrible things are happening to them, and Hitler also doesn't like jazz. This is like also a thing, right? So he's got two strikes against him. He manages to survive through most of this time. He's in France, and when France gets fully occupied, he tries to escape two different times from occupied France. He ends up making it, but. The first time he gets captured, and he gets captured by a German who loves jazz, <laughs> and the guy what? sets him free. Ah, oh my gosh! I never heard this story. Oh, oh Django is absolutely amazing. If you want to go jump down a wormhole or watch that movie, it's a good time. It's a good time. Now let's go back to Tony. Imagine your seventeen-year-old Tony Iommi. Like we're jazz right now. You and I are freaking out about this because this is an amazing story, right? The, yeah, the coincidences, okay. the lineup, the age, the the socioeconomic conditions are similar. Everything about it's crazy. You're mad and angry. You're Tony Iommi. You're mad. You're angry. You're sad. You're bitter. And this old boss of yours, who's probably partly to blame for this crap, shows up at your house with a vinyl record talking about some old jazz guy who lost his fingers and changed the world of guitar. And I'll directly quote from Tony now. It was the great Belgian-born gypsy jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt, and bloody hell, it was brilliant. I thought, if he's done it, I can have a go at it as well. It was absolutely great of Brian to be thoughtful enough to buy me this. Without him, I don't know what would have happened. Once I heard Django, I was determined to do something about it instead of sitting there and moping. Man, that's really inspirational and interesting and crazy. It's unbelievable. Now, if okay, let's zoom out for a second and just talk about this like guitarist. If Tony Tony actually had an option that would have been easier than what he ends up doing. Non-guitar players may not know this, but most guitars that you see, if you're just a person who don't know how to play guitar, you walk in a music store, they're they're made to for the dominant right hand. Most guitars are right-handed guitars. Right. Because and and, and most are tuned to E major. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about all and, this, and we're gonna hit that. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The tuning's a big part of it. All the we're gonna man. We're about to go into gearhead heaven. Okay. We're gonna talk about weird stuff about guitars. Okay. Majority of guitarists are right hand dominant. So a lot of left hand people, especially early on, 
just learn to play right-handed guitars, flipping them upside down. So my best friend in high school and college, Chris, he played, he was a left-handed guitar player, and he had a badass left-handed Dan Electro, but he would pick up my guitars and play them by flipping them. Tony had been learning properly. He actually had a left-handed guitar. But he has said, and I think he says it in the book, but he said it in interviews, that hindsight being twenty twenty, he wishes he would have just flipped the guitar. <laughs> Learned to play it the other way. Cheaper. Yeah, but he was young and idealistic and stubborn, and he had invested a few years learning the other way, so he didn't want to start over. Here's from the book. Part of my sound comes from learning to play primarily with my two good fingers, the index and the little finger. I'll lay chords like that, and then I put vibrato on them. Uh, I use the chopped off fingers mostly for soloing. We'll talk about those in a minute. When I bend strings, I bend them with my index finger and I learn to bend with my little finger. I can only bend them with the other fingers to a lesser extent. Before the accident, I didn't use the little finger at all, so I had to learn how to use it. Where I used to play a full chord before the accident, I often can't do now, so I compensate by making it sound fuller. For instance, I'll hit the E chord and the E note and put vibrato on it to make it sound big, so it's making that full sound. I would be able to make that full sound if I had all of my digits. That's how I developed a style of playing that suits my physical limitations. It's unorthodox, but it works for me. But even to get to that point, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, took some work. His fingers were wrecked. So quickly after the accident, he starts trying to figure out a workaround. And this fascinates me. And if you want to get into the nitty-gritty detail of what he does and you're curious about his trial and error on how he figures this out, he goes into great detail in the book. But he basically sets out to create artificial ends for his fingers because he's lost all the skin in the padding, all the way to the bone. He says in the book that, like, if he, if the caps that he puts on his fingers, which, which we're about to talk about, if they fall off and he starts hitting a guitar string with his fingers, like, he'll be able to, like, break skin with the bone still. Oh, man. I mean, I thought it was gross yeah. putting super glue into my when I had cuts on my fingers from playing guitar, but this is dude. Insane. So he does that. His first stab yeah. is with a plastic soap bottle. Okay, so like imagine dish soap sitting at your sink, the Dove variety or whatever, right? He takes an old British brand and he melts the bottle down and turns them into like basically like thimbles that he fashions to, to give himself ah. fingertips. Wow. And he goes into all this detail about this. But eventually, he comes up with this adaptation. And while it's gotten slightly more sophisticated through the years, it provides a lot of stories. He has to tape these things around his fingers before he plays. Like, yeah. still, he has to replace them a lot. He has to explain, this is the funniest part to me, what this little case is when he goes to airport customs. He says customs agents are always think they're drugs. But my favorite story is that once he got to a certain level, he found a place that would manufacture them for him. I'm going to go to him speaking. Nowadays, the people at the hospital make the thimble for my ring finger. They actually make a prosthetic limb, a complete arm, and all I use are the two fingertips they cut off. <laughs> I asked, why don't you just do me a finger? And they say, no, it's easier for us to give you the whole arm. Can you imagine? This is Tony talking. Can you imagine what the garbage man thinks when he finds an arm in the dumpster? <laughs> That's so stupid. Oh, it's unbelievable, man. It's oh, it's unbelievable. He goes on to say the thimbles I I cut off, it looks like real fingers. There's no leather on the ring finger one. There's a whole thing where he has to put leather over some of them. 
I can play with the material it's made of. They're too soft sometimes, so I leave them out in the air for a while to harden, or I put super glue on them to give them the right feel again. Like, this is, you know, this book was written, I think, like, only, like, 10 years ago. So this is still active stuff he has to do all these years into his career. But we're not done with the amazing pieces of musical history here. So Django Reinhardt influences Tony Iommi to not give up and basically to become stoner metal sludge god, right? Yes, but, right. And, and you, uh, we haven't really talked about this, but the tuning of everything changes, right? Because he's right. got to get him to where he can flex. So this is another amazing piece of the story. Tony Iommi is the reason that there are light gauge guitar strings. Legitimately. Oh, man. Oh, that's so crazy. So what, what gauge, like this is another thing we have to explain to non-guitarists. They, they're, the thickness of your strings can vary depending on what, how you want it to be, right? So if you're playing like an acoustic guitar, that's the one you don't have to plug in. You're playing around a campfire. Like those are thick, right? Because they have to vibrate. And then if you're playing like an electric guitar, they can be thinner. But at this point in history, in the 60s, early 70s, they were like, they only went so so thin and light. Now you can buy really yeah. light ones. And anybody that plays guitar, like Murdoch and I, we know this, right? You can buy light guitar strings. So once he figures out the thimbles, this is his new problem. He doesn't have the finger strength to really manipulate the heavy strings that are standard. So he has to go full on trial and error. Going back to the book, I use the two lightest banjo strings as the B and the high E on my guitar. This meant I could then drop down the gauge on the remaining strings to make them lighter because he couldn't buy light enough guitar strings. So think about that. If you're a non-guitarist, this means that you have six strings on a guitar and he's basically taken the two that are the highest and the lightest and the easiest to move from a banjo to make them even right. lighter. And then he's, he's taken the four that are lighter and gotten rid of the top two that are heavier. And they, they, he says, I managed to get rid of the thick low E string using an A string instead, and that worked for me. Now, later on, when we had our first album out and the band was doing well, I went to guitar string companies to try to persuade them to make lighter gauge strings. Their way of thinking was incredibly conservative. You can't do that. It will never work. They will never be harmonically right. I said, rubbish. It does work, and I should know because I use them. <laughs> and then they said, nobody, I did it myself. Nobody's ever going to buy them. Why would anybody want that? They were all in such agreement about this that even I started to think that maybe, I'm, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe they don't sound good. Um, eventually, the people at Picado Strings and Wales said, okay, we'll give it a go. This was in 1970, maybe 71. They made the first set of light gauge strings for me. They worked. They were great, and I used them for many years. Of course, then all the other companies jumped on that bandwagon, and guitarists all over the world started using them, and light gauge strings became popular. But to this day, people will say, you won't get a full sound. I've even worked with producers who have told me that I'll need to use a set of thick strings to get a big sound. And my response to that is simple. I've never used a set of thick strings. (laughs) <laughs> no and man the tuning the tunings so I, I learned how to i learned how to play a black sabbath song and i got the tunings and i was like oh man i guess I i'm, did the I'm only playing black sabbath songs now for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah because if i can do the math for everybody most guitars are in e major and it was sweet leaf i guess maybe i learned that i don't know um and it was in C sharp, 
So that's so you go from E to E flat, and then you've got to get to C, and so you've got to go two more steps, and it's C sharp, so it's actually D flat. It's crazy. It, it, right. So, and what's, what's crazy about this is that he is known for sludgy sound. He's known for riffs. He's known for these things, and people don't know that he basically had to reinvent a way to play the guitar and string the guitar not just because he was a curious cat like Eddie Van Halen. He did it because he wasn't going to be able to play the guitar otherwise. This and was the necessity he needed to play, yeah. The mother of mother freaking invention. And he he did it because Django did it. He invented a sound because of this accident. He invented maybe the sound of what what basically heavy metal is. Yeah. By the doomy, gloomy thing that was more doomy, gloomy, and scary than like Led Zeppelin. I mean, and it's it's interesting to it's interesting, you know. I mean, this this is a thought exercise, right? And it's silly, but this idea of the butterfly effect, right? Like one thing happening that changes the course of history. Butterfly wing. If he doesn't go back to work that day, is Black Sabbath ever a thing? Is there heavy metal? Like, do we just get Deep Purple and then it fizzles out, and we're all listening to the Almond Brothers? Like, what happens? If we don't get Tony Iommi, it's an it's an incredible story. And to end back to Eric's question that started this whole thing about dead groupies. Once I read this about Tony Iommi, I was very uninterested in how many drugs he'd taken in his life. Like, give the guy all the drugs because <laughs> he did the hard work up already, front. We already did give him all the drugs. It's called the seventies. <laughs> Good lord, the things I've read are uh, awful. I mean, I pre- unbelievable. I prefer my groupies to be alive, so I hope that Eric's question isn't true. But regardless, this is the most badass story. And the other thing is, for the influence that Tony has over an entire genre of music, not only like heavy metal, but the the beginnings of what happened in Seattle prior to grunge being a big thing with bands like Soundgarden and Mudhoney, like that is all because of Black Sabbath. So... With transitive property in place, are you telling me that Nirvana basically happened because of Django Reinhardt? Whoa. I'm going... <laughs> Things got really strange. This, this, is like, what, this, this is what I heard referred to earlier today as a pass the bong conversation. <laughs> I mean, it certainly is because this is... I was like, you're just going to go with... You're going to talk about from Black Sabbath, but... Uh, Django, I don't know. Listen, man. That's kind of weird to get there. Shouts to Django Reinhardt. Shouts to Tony Iowi. Shouts to Eric for writing the show. If Shouts to Eric. Dude, if you've got a question, hit us up. Uh, you know, it may be a weird roundabout answer, but we'll we'll at least end up doing an episode maybe about one of your favorite artists. Uh, <laughs> that, that's all I could offer you, Eric. I don't, I don't have an answer. If I do find out in the coming weeks that there's dead groupies hanging out somewhere, I'll let you know. Um, okay. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. And until next time, Murdoch, what do we need to keep doing? Keep telling scary stories. Oh, fingers. Fingers. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.